It is estimated that the world extracts 100 billion tons of material a year and wastes more than a staggering 90% of it. The linear way of take, use and throw away is making goods and services more expensive and taking a severe toll on the environment. How can a restorative and regenerative circular economy change this for the better? Let's find out. You're listening to Beyond Business with Vatsila, a series that goes above the realms of strategy and operations and seeks to find solutions to our global problems. Hello everyone, I'm your host Atte Palomäki and today Helen Burdett, Head of Circular Economy at the World Economic Forum, join us from Geneva and Connor Bryant, CEO of the Rubbish Project, join us from London. Welcome Helen and Connor. Great to be here, thanks for having me. Likewise, pleasure to be here. Looking forward to this discussion on my favorite topic, rubbish. (laughs) So, Helen, let's kick off with you. The circular economy offers a lot of hope for the future. What are the top three benefits of moving away from the current linear system that was born and shaped following the Industrial Revolution? I would say that first, circular economy protects nature through reduced reliance on virgin materials. Secondly, I would say circular economy strengthens business resiliency and returns. Businesses that incorporate a social and environmental aims in addition to their aims of growth and money-making are 43% more likely to scale. It's been identified that circular economy represents a $4.5 trillion business opportunity. And circular economy and control that companies can have over their own supply chains can shield them from the current linear supply chain disruptions. Third, circular economy reduces emissions. Nearly half of all emissions can only be tackled by how we make, take, and use resources. So I guess those would be my top three, are nature, business, and climate. I see another major benefit, possibly uh, even the, the biggest benefit, is that humanity wants to continue to be able to exist and live uh, on this planet indefinitely. And our current system is inherently unsustainable. And in simplest terms, that means we cannot keep doing what we're doing forever. We will simply run out of resources and there will be no more natural worlds to destroy. So as well as protecting nature, we also need to learn from nature. The natural systems on our planet have survived for billions of years and without our intervention would continue to exist for billions of years thereafter because they exist in cycles. The water cycle, the cycle of life and death, the nutrient cycle, they are so you know infinite and continuing because they exist in a loop. And that is, of course, a, a model that we are trying to emulate through biomimicry and learn from so that we can go on uh, continuing to live on this planet forever too. So it's really an existential question. So, you know, with that magnitude, are we seeing sufficiently significant and quick action on the ground to change the culture of take, make, waste? Unfortunately, we're still quite a long way from the scale of action and change that is required. Um, However, it is important to note that the momentum has really started to build. Over the last sort of 10 years, we are really starting to see an accelerated transition towards adopting this and taking this seriously as a business model. So while we are nowhere near doing enough yet, we are at least heading in the right direction, um, but we need exponential change um, to accelerate this uh, to get us moving faster. And what are the main benefits of such a transition? So one of the other key benefits of uh, transitioning to a circular economy um, for companies and for for countries is resource security. Currently, resources are bought off the market that are extracted as raw materials. And of course, as demand for those materials goes up and as their availability goes down, 
they will inherently become more and more expensive and access to them more and more restricted. Whereas if you build a circular system where you have control, then you can move towards a world which will, in the long term, become much more economically efficient. You know, it should be intuitive to us that if you want to make a product, it's going to be much easier to make a new version of that product out of an existing version of that product because it contains all of the resources required to, to make that thing. Our current economic system says it is cheaper to go and extract raw materials from the natural world to refine them and to process that into making a vehicle than to making a car out of a bunch of old car parts. But I guarantee that if I were to give you those two choices, that you would find it easier to build a car out of the pile of old car parts than you would to do it from the natural world. And so once we, we manage to make that transition and flip the scale, it will make um, the cost of our raw materials much cheaper for everyone involved and therefore the cost of our products and services. Helen, what would this mean for the world's climate goals, considering that the resource extraction and use account for more than half of all the greenhouse gas emissions? It's well understood that the energy sector contributes the largest percentage of greenhouse gas emissions. But what's less well known now is that getting to net zero energy will only get us around halfway there. Uh, Circular economy approaches for materials represent major levers to combating climate change, hence sort of the emissions benefits as one of our top three. For example, remanufacturing has been shown by the United Nations International Resource Panel to reduce emissions by over 80% in key sectors. So there's a big opportunity here uh, to take circular approaches to solving climate change. And I think that it's important to add there Um, that while climate change um, as a result of, of carbon emissions is a massive issue, it is unfortunately just one of the major environmental challenges that we face. Um, as David uh, Attenborough's uh, documentary Breaking Planetary Boundaries identifies, there are actually nine planetary boundaries um, where we are playing seriously close to the edge and um, of which climate change is, is only one. One of the things that they conclude at the end of the documentary is that the circular economy as an approach helps us tackle all nine of these planetary boundaries. So as well as helping us with tackle climate change, um, it helps us tackle all of the other existential environmental threats to the planet and humanity. I think that's a great point. Uh, to bring in that circular economy isn't an approach to, to one thing, it's really a broader mindset. Uh, you know, we live in in a, the world where we have uh, access to facts at our fingertips in our phones and through the internet and the connectivity of our global world. Uh, but what's really important is educating people on how to think. That's what schools are doing. That's embedded into education systems and professional development opportunities. And I think thinking of circular economy as a uh, way of thinking and an approach to decision-making is is an important part of reaching all nine of those. No doubt we have a massive opportunity here, both in terms of meeting the critically important climate goals, as well as putting resources to better use. So what's stopping us from taking action? We'll find out after this short break. Stay tuned. The Earth is not enough for us. Scientists calculate that by 2050 we will need the resources of almost three planets to sustain our current consumption levels and lifestyle. Clearly, that's not an option, so we need to act now. Helen, which sectors and industries have the biggest opportunities and can 
easily adapt to the circular economy? I would first note that organizations and individuals all have the power to adopt a circular mindset for more sustainable business decision-making and lifestyle decision-making. And we are seeing more and more of this fundamental shift. That said, on the emissions front uh, we were discussing earlier, some materials do represent a bigger emissions mitigation opportunity than others. Studies show that circular economy strategies could help reduce emissions from steel, aluminum, concrete, and plastics, so those four material sectors, by 50% by 2040. And for which areas and industries is it hardest then to break out of the linear setup? So those same four materials are often also referred to as harder to abate sectors, some more than others, and that moving to net zero is less straightforward, perhaps, for them. Uh, Global supply chains are complex systems, and they suffer from significant lock-in challenges and dependencies, uh, as we're, many of us are seeing on the consumer side this year through, due to the supply chain disruptions. Uh, but fortunately, we see that some of the most interest in circular economy from the highest level of business uh, and in our climate partnerships are from heavy industries, where uh, there can be kind of the biggest roadblocks to change. There's also the biggest interest in changing. So Connor, you help businesses becoming circular. In your experience, what are the most common bottlenecks and practical problems in converting from the traditional linear system? The top bottleneck or barrier is short-term thinking on both a government and company level. And this has been a major barrier to change for the circular economy, but also action on on climate change and really any other sort of large existential issue um, for humanity. Um, The other one that that Helen mentioned uh, earlier, there was the sort of lock-in or existing infrastructure investment. Um, is that if you as a, as a company or government have spent a large amount of money on the infrastructure that already exists, um, or that that infrastructure is hard to replace, or you know the world has been designed around it, then it can be quite challenging to build the investment to replace it and therefore write off the loss of the um, investment that you've already made. And then the other one is the desire to make small iterative changes rather than redesigning your whole approach. And while this is easier to do because it fits with your existing infrastructure and your existing business model and approach, ultimately it could be that the the problem is the way fundamental to your product or service, and therefore the best way of tackling it is to completely rethink your offering um, and to reevaluate how you provide your product or service. But that is quite a challenging uh, decision for businesses to make and really requires you know, innovative thinking and uh, great courage. And then finally is culture change. Is of course that we've designed these systems that are inherently wasteful by design. Can you think of any practical example of how to overcome such a dilemma? Yes. If you provide a product, a physical product, generally what consumers are buying that product for is that they want the function that it provides, not actually the object, right? The I like to drink water and this product facilitates me drinking water, this bottle that I'm holding up. It provides the function. By focusing on the function that consumers actually want and not on providing them with an object, you have the opportunity to redesign your business model to be more service-based and therefore less tied to the consumption of products that generally are inherently disposable. So it supports having products that have much longer life cycles or even moving away from using a physical product altogether. That concept came up in a conversation in Davos 
with an automotive company that gave the example of if you sell a car to someone else, then from a purely business perspective, you're incentivized that that car eventually becomes obsolete or that that car breaks down so you can fix it or that the consumer wants to buy another one. If you lease someone a car or you're renting out the car, then you want that car to last as long as possible and be desirable for as long as possible. And so there is the incentives piece of business models and circular business models. So in essence, also this servitization of society that manufacturers start offering services instead of products, it's taking us quite a long way then. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Switching to a service model from a model that relies on the continual consumption of objects is a huge leap that we can make in the right direction. And I would say is really one of many circular economy approaches, strategies or levers to change. And that we also have to redesign how those things are made uh, and think about their current use and their next use and, and what happens at their end of uh, that, that use. Uh, let's shift gears a bit. There's been a lot of discussion about the real desired level of circularity that should be achieved. Is it possible to assess and define this? Well, in the long term, we need to be aiming for as close to 100% circularity as possible. Different industries will be able to make different progress towards that goal quicker than others. Uh, and, and of course, this is also held back by the fact that this is a global system. So some industries you know, can really only improve so far without significant changes being made elsewhere in the global supply chain or, or market. So the The level of circularity that is achievable for different business sectors in the short term is is quite variable depending on the the industry or sector. The any conversation of the level of circularity, I think, quickly also turns into the metrics for circularity, and that is an area where we don't have as clear and concrete of metrics as there are for measuring greenhouse gas emissions. And there's a lot of work being done by a lot of smart people and uh, kind of experienced organizations on that right now. It doesn't mean that companies are not currently measuring this or that it's not part of country roadmaps for circularity. Uh, but in terms of aligned metrics for measuring the level of circularity by organization, by material, uh, by supply chain, those are very much in the works. So Helen, the World Economic Forum, it's all about multi-stakeholder partnerships bringing together private and public sector leaders, innovators and other bright minds. In terms of circular economy and speeding it up, how important is such an approach? Maybe I'm biased, but I see it as instrumental. Uh, And I think that my work over the past few years at the the World Economic Forum has only solidified to that view. Uh, As members of our Scale360 circular innovation community often uh, will be caught saying is that circular innovation is a team sport that no one can do it in a vacuum or by themselves. Trailblazing companies can prove new business models or launch new materials, but their ability to scale those innovation often depends on partnerships and public sector support. So neither government nor industry can transition the economy alone. This also represents a significant sea change in the business world. Traditionally, businesses in the same markets are considered competitors. But of course, when you are all working together to solve a global existential problem to humanity, in some ways your competitors also become your collaborators. In a sense, we win or lose together. And it also brings us to an important point, the role of governments, countries and cities in helping build a circular economy. We will discuss that on the other side of this short break. Stay tuned. 
What is the role that policymakers and governments need to play in building circular economies? How does one de-risk the transition? Thinking about the role of policymakers and governments, governments' role in influencing industries is often broken down into kind of push and pull. So pushing changes through regulation that restrict linear practices, uh, such as banning single-use plastics, or pull. So pulling changes through incentivizing circular approaches. Uh, for example, parts of Germany are giving people repair vouchers to encourage appliance and goods repair. In a conversation with a minister of environment at Davos, they brought up a third, potentially most crucial role of government, and that is to get out of the way. So as companies move to adopt more circular practices, innovative companies often bump up against existing regulations that make it difficult to grow their business or to enact those changes. The classification of waste is often cited as an example of this. So important regulations that are put in place to protect people's health often prevent use of waste entirely in new products. Uh, that means that those same regulations that are put in place to protect our health are also preventing a transition to the circular economy and need to evolve to become more nuanced. And so uh, in order for us to have companies that can redesign the, the concept of end of life and waste, uh, governments can get out of the way uh, by evolving some of their current regulations that may support linear practices. One of the biggest barriers to using recycled material in products, especially food contact packaging, is legislation that restricts the use of recycled materials in those applications. And a slow pace of change, even when presented with um, significant evidence to show that it, you know these, these bits of legislation are outdated, is really holding back the recycling industry. Um, Another key area uh, I would say that, that governments have a, a huge role to play is to starting to build in the external costs of consumption or of resources or of business practices um, through tax. But currently that cost isn't being born into the product. You're not being charged based on the cost to the overall planet and therefore the cost that we will all have to pay to, to fix that mistake, you are only paying for the small cost of producing that product. Now, at the moment, it is more expensive to use recycled material than it is to use virgin material. Um, this is you know, both a, a problem of not really acknowledging the externalized cost of using virgin material, but also a problem of the existing infrastructure investments that we've made. So it's become very clear that we need to act now in order not to breach the planetary boundaries. What are the main drivers that will really now push the creation of a more circular economy? One of them that I've, I've just mentioned there is the real world cost accounting. So if we start to bring in the real world environmental cost into every business decision that, that we make, that will dramatically change um, the viewpoint and the, and the economics of uh, our our products and, and systems. Um, the other one is, is mounting public pressure, is of course that companies can be very quick to make transitions when they feel that the public and therefore the market which they serve are, are turning against um, their product or, or packaging. You know, governments tried to regulate um, the use of of CFCs in um, expanded polystyrene packaging um, from people like 
McDonald's for, for years and made little progress. But when the public turned on that packaging, um, McDonald's switched immediately and forced the, the change throughout the entire supply chain. So um, public pressure can be a very uh, effective tool to, to getting businesses to, to change their their models. Moving on to that, that sort of leads into to sort of market forces as a whole, and then innovation from uh, businesses coming up with new and, and novel ways to to solve and tackle these problems. Talking of innovation, at Vartila, we've been quite active in working with digitalization and technologies such as 3D printing or additive manufacturing, and see them as quite transformative in our markets. How important do you see that this type of technology development is in driving the change? Technology will be key to scaling these solutions and ensuring that cities, regions, and countries can use the latest tools to find customized and circular solutions that are both sustainable and fair. We are at a place now that we shouldn't be coming up with new and innovative ideas and products that are not circular and do not incorporate the circular lens. You know, we've all been able to continue to work, um, those of us who work on computers um, from home the last few years. Uh, and that is enabled through precious metals that we have a clock on. Uh, we're expected to run out of virgin materials that create the devices that we're currently having this conversation on in the next century. And that may sound like a long time, uh, but in thinking about the industrial revolutions and that we're on the fourth one, it, it's really not that far away. And the final piece that I would say is that technology is by definition disrupting the kind of linear model of our economy. And in economic disruptions, those who are most vulnerable are often at risk. And that as part of these shifts and changes, we all also have to have in mind how to make this transition a just and fair transition, that it can't only be for the, the planet, but also for the people on it. And I would like to add that while uh, technological innovation and, uh, and change is, is key to, to solving this problem, it's not that we need to sit around and, and wait for someone to invent some new technologies that are going to magically save us. We have the tools today to better tackle this problem. And then you mentioned 3D printing. It is not the solution to all manufacturing, but it's as part of additive manufacturing, it's an innovative new approach to, to making things. Um, Previously, most forms of manufacturing were subtractive. You got a large block of material and you chipped material away from it. You know, think carving a statue out of a big block of marble. You're wasting all of the marble that isn't the statue you have left. Whereas, of course, with 3D printing, you are building the shape of the statue with just the amount of material that is required for that product. And it also allows us to combine with innovative um, sort of programs that allow us to optimize the material consumption. So mass manufacturing techniques that produce identical products in the hundreds of thousands are not suitable for providing bespoke products um, that fit to people's exact needs, whereas 3D printing fills that niche. Certainly a lot of opportunities out there. Connor and Helen, this has been a captivating discussion and it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise, always very keen to talk about the circular economy and to be a big advocate for the benefits that we can reap from transitioning and making that transition as quickly as possible. Thanks again for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, listeners. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and share it. I'm Atte Palomäki and today we went Beyond Business. You've been listening to Beyond Business with Vatsila. This podcast is produced by Spoon Finland and recorded on location in Helsinki.